today comes from Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 48, and chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And then the second scripture comes from Luke 2, 8 through 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, the Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of God's word. decide if it's the best or worst title. We'll leave that up to you. But it was the summer of 1988. It was the, the days of the butt cut. Do you remember? There was a part in the middle and two humps on the side. And that was actually an evolution. That was like the next stage of the mullet. That was like a mullet with the back removed, business in the front, party in the back. And uh, I grew up in rural Ohio, surrounded by farm fields and, and Guns and Roses and Bon Jovi. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And something new happened. All, all us, you know, guys playing basketball and trying to stay on a skateboard and, and in rural Ohio, uh, we, were, we were confronted by this new style of music that to us just came out of left field. And we knew about like Run DMC, they were out then, and, and Beastie Boys, can I get an amen? They were, uh, they were out then. But this was something new. And this, this group, NWA, released this album straight out of Compton. And, you know, it was angry, it was aggressive, the beat was hard, it was obscene, which of course meant we thought it was absolutely awesome. We loved what we heard. And, and for, at this time in the United States, for these kinds of things to be said, it was super controversial. And it still is controversial. Um, because what, what they did was they pulled back the curtain and they exposed all of America who at least knew their music to a reality of living in America that had been invisible to most Americans before that. And, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want to emulate what you hear in these albums. And there's, like I said last week, there's a reason we play the, instrument, the instrumental version of these albums. But what, what they did do was they pulled back the curtain. And we were able to see people who felt oppressed, people who felt invisible, people who felt uh, like nobody cared about them who felt like nobodies. 
and their experience. They, they rapped about a gang war, uh, or a war between gangs and the police in South Central L.A. in the late 80s. It was four years before the L.A. riots in 92. And again, we just thought it was awesome. But if you look back, you think, wow, that, a lot of what was being revealed then, that stuff's still relevant today. And of course, there's a lot of conflict and, and two sides to every story, but they revealed some, you know, something that was invisible previously. And, and I was talking to somebody here in the church who's, who's really too young to remember this time. And they look straight out of Nazareth and uh, about that. And, and I said, well, you know, it's from this album, Straight Out of Compton. You should go listen to Straight Out of Compton sometime. And I was like, did I just tell people to go listen to Straight Out of Compton? I don't think a pastor is supposed to say that. That's not, like, my pastor told me to listen to gangster rap. Like, that's not, that's probably not a good reputation for me to build. But this was groundbreaking in so many ways. And today we're starting this new series, Straight Out of Nazareth. And it really is a study of the Gospel of Luke. And the gospel of Luke is a gospel to the marginalized. It's, it's about how Jesus interacted with people who were often invisible in their society. People who were just a number. People who were outsiders. People who felt like nobodies. And Luke tells us how Jesus interfaced with these people. The writer of Luke is probably the only Gentile author in the Bible. He also wrote Acts, the fifth book of the Bible, or the fifth book of the New Testament, Acts of the Apostles. So Luke is part one, Acts is part two. And uh, the theme of Luke is found in chapter four that you saw in the video, where Jesus is invited to speak in, in his uh, hometown synagogue in Nazareth, where he grew up. And he unrolled a scroll to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, in the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament, and he, re- he read this verse, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in Isaiah 61, the next line after that is, and the day of vengeance of our God, to proclaim the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus leaves that out in Luke 4. He leaves the vengeance of God out, and he's, he ends his reading with to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he went on to say some pretty controversial things to his, to his people his, in his hometown of Nazareth. So by the end of the sermon, this is kind of this enigmatic passage where it says the people of Nazareth were so infuriated with him that they tried to throw him off a cliff. Now, I've preached some bad sermons in my day, none that were life-threatening, but this is what happens in his hometown of Nazareth, and and Nazareth kind of had a bad reputation anyway. If you remember in John chapter 1, Philip invites Nathanael to come and see Jesus, and when Nathanael hears that, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the reputation that that this town had. Nazareth was a tiny, poor village on the wrong side of the tracks in what is now northern Israel. The cool town, Sepphoris, was about 3.7 miles away, and people with money lived in Sepphoris. It was a cosmopolitan town. The Bible never mentions Sepphoris, even though Jesus lives so close to it, but it sits on top of the mountain. So these were the people who lived in the nice houses up on the hill in Sepphoris. And it had a Roman theater and later bathhouses, and it appears that it had a reputation of being a city that was kind of a sellout to the Roman Empire. And the Romans occupied the, the land that Jesus grew up in. So there was this massive military presence that was unwelcome in, in Jesus' area where he grew up. 
And, and Sepphoris was kind of viewed as a sellout, unlike Nazareth, who was just, a, was, it was just a poor village that was invisible. Now, Mary, the mother of Jesus, wasn't from the cool cosmopolitan town up on the hill, Sepphoris. She was from Nazareth. And when I visited Israel in 2012, I took some pictures of Nazareth. Here's one of them, at least. And, and this is now, of course, there's a, there's a church here built over the site. And whether she really grew up here in this exact location or not, we're not sure. But um, she probably grew up in, a, in something like this. Mary was a poor peasant girl, and she essentially lived in a cave. This would have been a, a, a very tiny space for a large family. And, and she, certainly in the ancient world, being female and being poor, was somebody who was completely invisible in her society. Nobody cared about Mary. Nobody cared what she thought, what she had to say. Nobody cared about her future. Nobody, well, they kind of did care about her past because she was probably 12 or 13 years old when she was betrothed to marry Joseph. And girls were betrothed at that age because that's, that was assumed to be the age where they had their first period. And it was super important in this society that the girls were, quote-unquote, pure for their husbands. So this is the kind of life that she lived basically viewed as property, the property of her dad and then property uh, passed off to her, her future husband, Joseph. Now, she was essentially invisible in the eyes of this world, but not to God. Mary was not invisible to God. God calls her and blesses her. And we read that scripture, you probably thought, felt like it's Christmas in June. That's the beginning of the Christmas story in Luke, and that's part of the Magnificat, where Mary ex- expresses thanks to God. And praises God that, that God has seen somebody like her and has called her. Somebody that's not viewed as important in this world, but God has seen her and called her. And even if you're a skeptic, you may be an atheist or an agnostic and you may be searching or trying to figure out what you believe. If nothing else, this poor peasant girl who, who lived in a cave became the mother of Jesus Christ. And no matter what you believe about her, that's kind of a big deal. And so this poor peasant girl, invisible in the eyes of the world, became Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then Luke tells us that her and her future husband traveled to Bethlehem when she was pregnant, near, the, near full term. And Bethlehem is about 100 miles away. That's like from here to almost Sedona. And can you imagine being pregnant and traveling by foot or by a donkey almost 100 miles? And, and this is her experience. This is what Mary's life was like, and so they get to Bethlehem, and you know the story, there was no room for them in the inn, in the quote-unquote inn. Well, hotels were very rare in that day, and there's actually another word that is translated to hotel in Greek, and so it's probably not a hotel that they, where there was no vacancy and they couldn't find a place to stay. The Greek word that we have translated inn in the Christmas story is the Greek word kataluma, and it's probably best translated as an upper room. I have a diagram of just a typical house in first century Palestine. And the upper room was a guest room. You see the, the room there at the top? That was, that was a room for guests and, and family to stay in. The hospitality was extremely important. And then downstairs you'd have the kitchen. And, and apparently, whoever these people are, where Mary and Joseph were going to stay, what probably happened was that guest room was already full. There was already somebody staying there. And again, Mary's experience in the first century Middle East if she gave birth to her baby in a house where all these people were, she would make them unclean. Because when a woman gave birth, it was, it was the belief of the time that that was un, an unclean experience. And that she would make everybody in the house unclean. 
And so what do they do? They put her in the bottom right there, which is where the animals stayed, pretty much the garage. That's where, that's where families in the first century kept the ox or the donkey that they would use to plow fields and, and do work around their little farm. And so Mary gives birth to Jesus in another part of the house in an animal stable. And this is a more realistic picture here from, from the area. You see that little cave where the area is pointed to. So Mary probably grew up in a cave and then travels 100 miles and there's no room in the guest room. So she gives birth to her first child in a cave. That's what Mary's life was like. So um, that was her experience in her world. Now about three miles from Bethlehem, you can actually see this from most places in Bethlehem. There's a mountain, it's a cone-shaped mountain and it's almost the same height as Camelback. And it's called the Herodian or the Herodium. It's also called the Mountain of Paradise. And it was the home, uh, it was a fortified palace of Herod the Great, who was a ruler in the time that Jesus was born. And he called himself great because of the massive uh, building projects that he undertook. He was the greatest builder in, in Israel's history. And he had a 33-year reign, and, and he became a, a ruler largely because of, of the friendship his dad had with Julius Caesar. So Herod's a guy with connections. He grew up with a rich dad who knew the emperor, and he ended up being the ruler in this area. Now, um, Herod had slaves build the Herodian. It looks like a mountain that's actually man-made. Can you imagine Camelback Mountain being man-made? He, he, he had this mountain constructed for himself. And I took a picture when we were there. Inside, up at the top, there's the palace area. Now, this, of course, this would have been covered in his time. But there were bathhouses. Uh, bath there was a theater. There was a huge pool that was cool. There was, a, there was a, a, the warm bathhouse. There were vaulted ceilings, raised floors. There were channels in the walls to conduct heat through the bathhouse. In the first century world. And, and these pools had to be filled up, of course. Can you imagine slaves carrying water up Camelback Mountain to fill pools? Now, we mentioned that this was man-made. There's actually a mountain next to this that is missing the top third. Because he had slaves take down the top third of the mountain next to this so they could build his own man-made mountain. Why would you tear down a mountain? in order to build your own mountain, because you can. That was the life that Herod lived just three miles from where Mary gave birth to Jesus. Now, God chose Mary. Jesus could have been born into Herod's family. He could have been born into the, the man-made mountain palace, but that's not what God chose. God chose somebody like Mary, somebody who was invisible, somebody who felt financial stress in her life, who knew what it was like to be poor, somebody who felt the anxiety of wondering, you know, is the next meal going to come? What if the crops don't grow? The, the, the donkey's sick. Now what? The, when the, the unforeseen financial crisis comes, Mary was somebody who knew what that felt like, and her parents certainly, and her brothers and sisters, they all knew what that felt like. And then the very first people to hear the announcement of Jesus' birth were shepherds. We know that from the Christmas story. They were working a third shift nearby. 
And shepherds were the lowest rung on the socioeconomic totem pole. Shepherds were viewed as grifters and migrants who were unwelcome because they just went from place to place because their sheep needed grass to eat. And so they would graze on other people's land and they would just kind of move around. And the people who owned that land were, were protective of it and xenophobic against shepherds. Oh, they're just kind of those people who want to use us and, and, and use our resources and, and game the system, those shepherds. And shepherds, they, because of that, they were just despised. We think of it as cute, you know, taking care of shepherds, but that's not the reputation they had. But the angels appear to them, and they announce the good news, the gospel, which is a, the good news in that day was the way the Romans announced victory in war, the birth of a child. Euangelion is the word in Greek. And, and the angels appeared to these shepherds, these nobodies, these migrants, migrant families grazing on other people's land. The shepherds appeared to them and announced the good news from them. So what do we take from that? God chose Mary, not Herod, and God announced the good news to shepherds. Well, if you're feeling financial stress, one of the things we can take away from that is that God identifies with the nobodies of this world. The poor, the invisible, the outsider. Most of us at some point in our life have probably felt like the outsider, like you were just a number. I, I talked to a guy recently who makes a really good living. He's a great job. And he, he said to me, you know what, I'm realizing at, at the, the company where I work, I'm pretty much just a number. So you can be poor and you can be full of financial stress and maybe you feel like that this morning. You can also be somebody who's doing really well in life and you still feel like an outsider. And you know in this world, you, you, can, you can make good money and still feel like a pawn. And, but God identifies with people who feel like nobodies and the poor and the invisible. And so if you feel like a nobody, if you're feeling financial stress, well, there's good news for you. Just like God saw Mary and chose Mary, God sees you. And God can choose you and, and work through you and call you and gift you and, and live his purpose through you and work through you in amazing ways in this world as you partner with him to make a difference with your life. Because that's, what, that's the kind of God that called Mary and then announced the good news to the shepherds. So last week I talked a little bit about my kind of questioning process, my deconstruction process when I was trying to figure out what I believe and asking questions. And I know a lot of us here are probably somewhere in a deconstruction or reconstruction phase where we're trying to figure out what we believe, what don't we believe, but what do we, what do we want to be for? We don't want to just be negative and, and know what we're against, but what do we want to be for? And so I shared a little bit about my experience of, of going through that. And I had this, uh, this experience, um, actually it was just, it would have been about three years ago because uh, I did some nonprofit consulting and um, I was invited by a, by a nonprofit to meet with their board and, and kind of help them figure some things out. And I was sitting in a board meeting, and this was an organization that had Christian roots. Um, it was an organization that kind of was they kind of flaunted that and talked about it. And and uh, um, but what was happening in the board meeting was not very Christian. It was more Herod like than it was Christ like. And as I sat in this board meeting, I could see there was one person in, that was being scapegoated and overburdened, and, and I could just see there, there's this mentality that the rest of us are just kind of living high on the man-made mountain paradise palace, and we're putting everything on this one person, you know, way down below. There's that mentality, and it was, it was super easy to see. And I thought in that moment, you know, and that's, that's after asking a lot of questions and going through years of questioning, you know, what's the value of religion? You know, is religion for crazy people? 
It was religion for gullible people who are just easily manipulated for politics to get their votes. I don't think I'm the only one who's ever asked those questions. You know, and, and what do we, you know, we live in a different world than the ancient world, and we live in a, a post-scientific revolution world, and all kinds of questions about that. And, and as I sat in this meeting, however, I thought to myself, you know, Jesus gives a teaching where he says uh, to his disciples, he says, the Gentiles, meaning the Romans who were occupying their land, and that Herod was a puppet king of, the Gentiles lord it over other people. Lord it over other people. That means they take a position of authority and they just kind of push down, and it's oppressive. They, 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 they think they're great, and they, other people are less than them, and they just overburden them and scapegoat them. The Gentiles lord it over other people, but Jesus says it, it shouldn't be that way with you. And instead, Jesus says, the greatest among you should be your servant. And that's where the concept of servant leadership comes from. There's a whole like, um, library of books on servant leadership based on that principle. And I sat in this meeting, and I thought, you know, this organization with Christian roots has forgotten the teaching of Jesus. And no matter what religion you are, and no matter, or no religion... And no matter what your view is of the Bible or the, the questions you have about faith, and I thought, you know what? That kind of teaching needs to be shouted from the rooftops. Don't you agree in our world, in the society we live in, where it's getting harder and harder for the middle class, and people feel the squeeze, so many people are financially stressed? We need that teaching. The greatest among you will be your servant. The Gentiles lord it over the people, but it shouldn't be that way with you. The greatest among you will be your servant. And so if you want to be great, and if you want to be a leader, and if you want to be somebody influential and make a difference in this world, serve other people. Put yourself beneath them and help them lift them up, serve them, inspire them, give them hope. Help them believe in themselves. Invite them to join a larger purpose. Jesus says that's what it looks like to be a leader, not the kind of leader that Herod was. And as I sat in that meeting, I thought, you know what? All kinds of questions are unanswered. And, and we have the rest of our lives to figure out what we really believe about God and the Bible and faith. But, but here, for me, what I took away from that was, you know what? There's some things that are just worth holding on to. And for me, that was like turning a corner. Like, okay, now I, I want to reconstruct. I want to figure out, you know, what, what, how do we really build something that is healthy and life-giving and that affirms human beings and, and the dignity and worth of people and that is a solution to the problems that we see all around us, especially in the society we live in right now, super divided and, and the gap widening between the rich and the poor. And I said, the teaching of Jesus is something to build on. And that was, that was a moment in my life. And so especially if you don't feel like you have the resources, if you feel financial stress right now, God can provide and work through you. Just like Jesus says in Luke chapter four and like he did with Mary and like he announced the good news to the shepherd, he said he came to bring good news to the financially struggling. And if that's where, how you feel right now, you are called to live a life above financial stress. God has not called you to live a life you know, wallowing in the mundane financial stress that you may feel right now, this, feeling this weight placed on you. I'm sure like the slaves who carried water up the mountain for Herod. That's not the life that God has called you to. If you feel like you're a slave to your work, and even if you make good money, like, like the, my, my buddy I talked about who said he, he realized he's just a number. 
God has called us to a life that is beyond that. Poor is a relative term. So compared to most of the world, we're rich, actually. But if, if a house around here costs $300,000 and you make $35,000 a year, that's, that's going to be a struggle. And that is the situation that a, lot of, that a lot of people in our area come from. Most of us, if not all of us, are in the middle class. And we know that it's getting tougher for the middle class in America. These are just facts. These are, these are numbers and, and charts that we're talking about here. So you may not be considered poor, but we feel like it sometimes because the American middle class lifestyle is financed with debt. We have a lot of stuff, but we don't own much of it. If, if you're the typical middle class American and, and we're still paying for it and wages have stagnated in America over the past 40 years. And as of 2018, the median household income in the U.S. was $60,000 or $60,336. So median household income, that's not individual income, that's household income in the United States was $60,336. 25% of Americans uh, pay for necessities with debt. This is according to NerdWallet. So 25% of Americans are paying for, for food and necessities with credit cards. Credit card debt rose by 5% for Americans in this past year. So we look at the economy and some of the numbers are roaring, but then credit card debt has risen by 5%. The average total household debt in the United States right now is $135,000. That's the average. That means there are people way below that and people way above that household debt. So that's twice the median income. And so the average American has twice as much debt as we have in total household income. So if you're financially stressed, part of that is we're, we're part of a system. There was a system in Jesus' day that kept Mary's family poor. And we are a part of a system. And wherever you are in that, you're affected by that system. Now, there may be other reasons as well. And if you, if you are financially struggling, if you're feeling stressed, we want to know why. Or you want to know why. I want to know my, why for my own life. And you want to know why for yours. And so if you're struggling because you're underemployed and you know you're underpaid and you could, you could do better in life, but you, maybe there's some decisions need to be made, that's, a, that's one solution. Maybe it's going back to school or maybe it's asking for a raise. Even if your boss makes you feel like you could never deserve a raise, well, of course, that's, that's his job to make you feel like that. Not really, but that's what a lot of people think. But maybe it's asking for a raise or maybe it's changing careers or maybe it's a second job for a little while. For a little while, because you want to live a sustainable life as well. Are you struggling because of overspending? Well, that's a different solution. Are you struggling because you overspend because you just kind of feel this temporary high? There's a lot of anxiety in our world. And maybe you feel that, and if, if you buy something, then it gives you this temporary high, and you just kind of feel good. And, and it's, it's, it's a fix. And the problem with that is, of course, you have to keep doing that. And so are you overspending as a way of self-medicating? Because that's a different solution, because there are other ways to deal with anxiety and, and, and the feeling that that's giving you that doesn't, that doesn't cause you so much financial stress. Are you struggling because of health issues and, and you just had to lay out a bunch of money or the car broke down? Or, and, you know, living in America sometimes feel like playing, uh, feels like playing Monopoly, doesn't it? And you just roll the dice and you hope you land on a good square. And, and if, you're, if you're struggling and feeling stressed because of that, well, that's a different set of issues. Well, um, Maybe you need the help of a community and friends and learn how to, to, to ask for help and just say thank you. And you don't, you don't owe people anything else. Maybe it's that kind of a thing, you know, just to, to get you out of the hole for a while. But we, we live in a culture that values upward mobility. 
And if that's so common for us in the Southeast Valley, we don't even realize that. We're, we're like fish that don't realize they're swimming in water. We, we don't, and it doesn't matter who you are, where you live in the world, we are often blind to the culture around us. You know, there are days in Phoenix where the temperature's perfect. We, a couple of weeks ago, you know, we're getting out of that stage now, but where the air just feels perfect and there's no humidity and you don't even feel the air around you. You know what I'm talking about? It just feels perfect. And that's, that's what our culture feels like. You don't even know it's around you until you're confronted with something else. And in the Southeast Valley, we're in a culture that values upward mobility. And what that means for us is we just want to make more money. Our goal is to make more and more money throughout our lives and to get the bigger house and, and more granite countertops and more luxury cars. And if you do it really well, you have this awesome retirement. And if you do it really well, then you leave money to your kids. And, and they, just, they have you know, a different starting place in life than you had. That's just the goal. That's the unspoken goal of many of us in suburban America. And it may be that some of us need to question that goal, depending on how much it's driving us. Because some of us do have what we need. But we've got this loop that's playing in our heads that's really a part of our culture that just says more, 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 more all the time. And it leads to financial stress when there doesn't need to be any. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 6, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll wear, what you'll eat, or what you'll drink. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. That's what he's talking about. He says, your heavenly father knows that you need these things. And he provides for the birds and the flowers in the field. And he'll provide for you. But here's what Jesus says. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And God's kingdom is his leadership that is very different from Herod's leadership or very different from the leadership that we're often seeing in our country from, you know, the haves and that, that's causing that, that stagnation in wages and that wealth gap to, to increase in the United States. God offers a different kind of leadership from that. His kingdom and his righteousness. Righteousness means to do what's right by everybody. It doesn't just mean doing the right thing personally, morally. It means doing the right thing for everybody in society. It's based on the Jewish concept of justice and righteousness. Tzedakah. It's a Jewish word, tzedakah. Do you want to say that with me? Tzedakah, try it. Tzedakah. And you, you accidentally spit on the neighbor's head in front of you. Tzedakah. Tzedakah, justice and righteousness. Jesus says, if you partner with God and seek justice and righteousness with your life, that's, that's all God requires of you. And if you do that, you will be provided for. You don't have to wallow in, in financial worry and anxiety. You don't have to feel like you're trapped in this hamster wheel. If you will focus on, on bringing God's leadership and bringing justice and righteousness to this world, God will take care of you. And I saw this firsthand a few years ago. We took a, a mission trip to Nicaragua. And Nicaragua is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere behind Haiti. And so us, you know, suburban Americans, uh, we, we want to do good things. We want to help people. We want to love people. And we see that there are needs, and we want to go meet that need. Now, there's also some other things going on. Because when we go help somebody who's poor, what does that do for our own sense of self-worth and self-esteem and our own accomplishments in life? If we're honest, we can sometimes feel better about ourselves. We went, we went down to Nicaragua, and our project was we're going to pour a concrete slab to create this outdoor cafeteria at an elementary school because the kids were sitting on the ground and eating their lunch without washing their hands because there was no place to wash their hands and they would get worms and then they would get dysentery and then they would miss school and it became this, this huge educational issue 
And so we went to pour a concrete slab and install a sink so the kids could wash their hands and eat on the concrete and not be down with the, with the worms and the dirt. And it made a difference. And the people there were super thankful. And we did some great things. And it was a sense of accomplishment. And we gave financially to that. And we put some sweat equity into it. It was awesome. It was great. And I also had this other experience. Uh, apparently, I drank the water without realizing I was doing that. I don't remember drinking the water. And I was the only one on our team, apparently, who drank the water. But somehow, I drank the water. And so that was about 12 hours of just details that you don't need. But you can imagine what my life was like. And uh, I had a roommate who didn't get any sleep that night. Just put it that way. All right, poor guy. And so that was my experience. And then that was the day before we left or left there to go back to Managua to, to fly back here. And so I was still kind of out of commission the next day. And I rode in a little pickup truck with one of the volunteers because I just couldn't, I couldn't sit upright. So I had to lay down in this dude's truck. And, uh, and uh, he and I just kind of talked, you know, going down the, down the mountains out of the jungle back to Managua. And he was a smart, informed guy. Nicaraguan citizen, but he was pretty up on America. And uh, we were talking about the differences between our countries. And he was like, yeah, I mean, obviously Nicaragua's poor. And he was talking about a canal that's going through. And people are excited about jobs, but it's controversial. And, and we started talking about American politics. And health care came up, the cost of health care. And when I was, well, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago, I was opening this plastic package in my kitchen. Somebody gave me something. And I was trying to open it with a knife. Not the smartest thing I've ever done in the world. And so I'm jamming this knife into this plastic package trying to open it. At, the, at this moment, I said, this is really dumb. And then the knife slipped, and it hit my hand. So there's a scar on my hand right here. It cut my tendon, that, so I, I couldn't lift my thumb. It was, it's a weird feeling to try to lift your thumb, and it just won't move. And so I had to get surgery, and uh, it was microsurgery. I had health insurance, but the, the microsurgeon was out of network. So I, uh, the, the insurance paid for 20% of my surgery. I paid for 80% of my surgery, which was about five grand out of pocket. And I told him that story. I said, yeah, this little scar right here, man, that was about a, that was about a five grand scar. And he just kind of looked at me and I said, yeah, I, mean, I, I paid $5,000 out of pocket to get that fixed. And check it out, Nicaraguan guy, second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Smart guy and a great guy, volunteer, empathetic guy. He looked at me and he goes, no, no. I looked at his face and I realized he felt pity for me. That's an interesting experience for an American, isn't it? Because we're going to pour a concrete slab because we have so much and they have so little. And he's like, he's like, brother, I just go to Costa Rica and pay nothing. That's, right? It was an experience. You know, we're a part of a system and we don't realize it. It's like fish not realizing they're in the water and the perfect days we don't feel the air around us, but we're a part of a culture where we accept some things as normal and, and, and some things, you know, we, we just have to be confronted with something else before we see how something can be different. But anyway, part of the good news for you and me is that money cannot provide the level of joy that serving and giving can provide. When we went to Nicaragua and served, it, we, that gave us joy. It gave them joy because they, they helped us and they were able to serve us in some ways. And I'm not sure who benefited more, me or them. 
And, and at the same time now, even if you have uh, a lot, if you're, if you're well off, the good news for you is that money cannot provide the joy that serving and giving uh, can provide for you. The good news that God identifies with the poor also sets the rich free. Because the rich can realize, wait a second, I don't have to be self-absorbed. I don't, there's more to life than just making more money. I don't have to be identified by my money or how much I have or my net worth. Uh, I don't have to be, uh, uh, I don't have to conflate my, my image with the car I drive. I don't have to be uh, constantly uh, working and be a workaholic and ignore my family. It, it pays off for me. But there's more to life than that. Because the gospel is good news for the poor, it's also good news for the rich. As, as Mary said, um, God sees the humble. And so the challenge, if you feel like you're, you're well-to-do, is, is to be humble. And you can be set free from being controlled by... I had that graphic somewhere, but it's gone. It's all right. But you can be set free from being identified by your money and feeling like that's all that life is. If it's not good news for the poor, then it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that can also be good news for the rich because we can partner with God to bring his kingdom and his righteousness uh, to, our, to our world. And so if, if you feel like you're well off, how do you stay humble and guard against pride? Well, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He's talking about Jesus being God in the flesh, but Jesus empties himself, gives of himself. He did not consider equality with God to be used to his own advantage. Jesus wasn't content with living in the mountain palace. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We're going to take communion here in a couple of minutes. And we dramatize what Jesus did. He's God in the flesh. He has the mountain palace. But he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to humble myself, empty myself, because I want to I do good things in the world. And I'm going to be uh, a man. And I'm going to take on the nature of a servant. And I'm, a, I'm going to give of myself and serve. And even if you're wealthy and feeling financial stress, that's the key out. That's the key that unlocks the cage. It doesn't have to be all about me. And I don't have to be defined by what I have, but I can humble myself and, and empty myself and, and serve like Jesus did. And we have this summer schedule that's uh, super, super busy. We'll see it in the announcements later, but we have lots of things going on this summer. If you follow along the email and make sure you, you know, stay up to date because there's a lot going on. But one of the things we're going to do on June 30th is we're going to conduct a food drive here that's going to benefit Matthew's Crossing Food Bank in Chandler. And we'll, just, we'll announce it every week up to then. And then on June 30th, we're going to have a, some big ben, uh, bins back there. And it's whatever you have, bring it. And then we'll, we'll drop it off at Matthew's Crossing. In the summertime, food banks experience a shortage because people feel like they want to give during Christmas. But in the summer, it drops. And Matthew's Crossing was founded in 2001 by a church. It's now an independent nonprofit food bank. Its first year, it served 800 people. Now they serve, listen to this, 78,000 people per year in the Chandler area. 
who are often invisible to you and me. Might be a shock that there are that many people in this area who need help, but there are. With over 200 volunteers, one in four children, one in five adults, and one in seven seniors have difficulty affording adequate and nutritious food. That's what Matthew's Crossing does. And so we're going we're gonna to partner with God to make a difference with our lives and just conduct a food drive to help boost them in the summertime. And so I invite you to just you know, pay attention in, uh, to the announcements and then on June 30th, bring whatever you can and be a blessing to people in our city who often feel like they're invisible. And I want to close with this. If you're struggling financially, if you're feeling financial stress, God has more for you than feeling that. So whatever's causing that, I encourage you to just get, get to the root of it. Decide enough's enough. And we're going to take care of this and we're going to figure out a solution. And the, the answer will be different depending on whatever's causing it. If you feel like you have plenty, then I want to encourage you that you can be an up and outer. You can, you can have plenty, but you can still not really make a difference with your life. And I encourage you to follow Jesus' example and humble yourself and give of yourself. And there is no joy like the joy of giving and serving. So my wife and I have done our best um, to live by this belief that we picked up early on in life. Where God guides, God provides. And we've used that mentality to start two churches. And, and um, we have done it because it gave us joy. Now the truth is, it also hurt. It also hurt us. Full disclosure, we recently just paid off some credit card debt from planting the last church. We, we went all out. And then we, we decided, you know, let's be smarter about it this time. So a couple of years ago, my wife and I started this wedding business where, um, you know, obviously if you're getting married, you look for a DJ. And, and I thought, you know what, hmm, I think I could do that. And so let's, uh, let's, let's start a wedding DJ business. And then I was like, wait a second, I've done all kinds of weddings throughout my ministry career. Why don't we do like the one-stop shop DJ business and wedding officiant at the same time? I'm like, that's a stupid idea. Nobody's going to go for that. Almost everybody who contacts me, they want the officiant and the DJ like as a part of the package. Like it's totally worked. And we decided let's start this business and it'll be a nice little side job for our family. And then my wife and I will go out and she'll run sound when I officiate. And so it's date night. Like we, we go out on dates and we eat other people's food and dance. <laughs> it's like, it's brilliant. I'm like, man, this is like one of our best ideas ever. And um, now here's the the real reason we did it because we thought you know what we may plant a church again we may feel called by God to plant a church and there is no joy like giving and serving and we know that and this is just kind of the reality and I, and I say this to, to make the point about joy so the speakers the mics, the trusses um, the, all the cables the computers all that stuff belongs to our DJ business. We started this business where we could make money and pay off all that equipment and just let the church use it. So it's totally paid for, free of charge. Nobody had to give a dime for it. It's just here because it gave us joy to do that. And then earlier in the year, we found out we need a truck because we have a 24-foot race car trailer parked out here and you need to haul that trailer to unload all this equipment and store it. And so we bought a truck and we bought this 2008 black uh, Toyota Tundra it's total gas hog. It gets like 14 miles to the gallon. You know, I'm, I'm ruining the environment to, you know, plant this church, but I don't know how I feel about that. But, um, so 
my son now, who's eight, and I don't want to talk about my sons every week as a sermon illustration. I really do want to be sensitive about that for their benefit too, but I'm just so proud of him. He comes with me now and helps set up every Sunday. And so he and I show up here about 7.30 every Sunday. And then our team comes a little bit later, a little before 8 or 8. And they, and they descend on this place and transform the place. But he and I ride in that big black truck and we pick up the trailer. And he comes here and, and he, he put out the seats, by the way. He put out the seats that you're sitting on. And then a couple of weeks ago, he... It was like his school was ending, and I think he drew this picture at school. He brought this picture home I want to show you. So my eight-year-old, and now that's, of course, the black truck, and it says Tundra on it. And that's the trailer behind it. And he handed me this picture. And he said, it's, look, it's a picture of me and you towing the trailer. You know, there aren't enough Kleenex in the house sometimes. And... Uh, I looked at I thought, okay, we're framing that, first of all. But you think about if you're a parent or a grandparent or you just, aunt and uncle, it doesn't matter. And you think about setting an example for the next generation and teaching them. You know, this is a crazy world we live in. And you want your kids to grow up to be a part of the solution, not part of the problem in our society. And you, you want them to learn to serve and teach them good values. There is no better way than actually giving them the chance to do it. We'll do some, uh, a volunteer event this summer that involves kids too, by the way. That's going to be a part of the summer schedule. You'll see that. There's no better way to teach our kids to be good people than to give of themselves and to serve. We're the same. We're just big kids. There's no better way to partner with God, to make a difference with your life, to be set free from financial anxiety, whether you're a down and outer or an up and outer. There's no better way than to get involved and to give and serve, and there's no joy in this world like giving and serving. And by the way, I said, what, what are the things in the corner? And he's like, well, that's just two cars crashing into each other. Like, we never saw a car crash. And he's like, that's the hood flying through the air. So I mean, it's, it's just not cool. If you're eight, it's not cool if there's not a car crash somehow. But that's the joy that comes from giving and serving. I invite you to uh, bow for the closing prayer.